0: Well, October of 2016 that's coming up in a few short months will be a very special time for me and my wife we will be celebrating 25 years of marital bliss yeah pretty exciting and as i uh, as i got to thinking about it we got engaged in It will be June of 2016. That will mark 25 years since our engagement. And that led me to this thought. It was about a little little less than 25 years ago when I became educated in the ways of the diamond. Before I met Jareen, I I had no clue about diamonds. But when I met Jareen and fell in love with her and asked her to marry me, it placed me in a position that all of the men have been placed in, where you have to get educated quick about the ways of the diamond. And uh, it was a very short educational process. I do want to ask you this. Have you ever looked at a diamond in a jewelry store and it literally captured your attention? You were just absolutely mesmerized by the beauty of this diamond. And as you're admiring this beautiful stone, this happens every time. The salesperson he uh, he pulls out his ace and he pulls a trick on you. You know what every jeweler does after you're already mesmerized with the beauty of the diamond. And most men they do it on their own, right? You're you're there on your own. You're 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 scoping out the diamond. You're you're mesmerized by the beauty, and then the trick begins because. The jeweler pulls out the black velvet. Yeah. And you're like, thanks a lot. Because now the diamond that previously looked beautiful is is multiplied. It just becomes absolutely astonishing. But the thing that's interesting about this trick that every jeweler plays is that nothing has changed in the diamond. You merely have a changed perspective with the black velvet that forms the backdrop for the diamond. The title of the message today is God is Love. And the Bible emphatically declares this reality, that God, in fact, is love. And this morning, like that diamond, but even more so than the diamond, I hope much more so that you will be captured by the love of God that you will be mesmerized by the love of God, that you will be encouraged by the love of God, that the love of God will draw you in and bring great, bring great peace into your life. I want to accentuate the love of God this morning by, by contrasting this attribute of God with the black velvet. And the black velvet, you see, will help depict the true condition of of you and I, the condition of the creature. I want to ask God this morning to help us that we would see the beauty of his love as we contrast it with the black velvet of the human condition. Will you join me in prayer? Our Father, we have been singing about your love. We've been singing about your sovereign grace. We've been singing about the the amazing reality of redemptive history as we focus in on your love an attribute that is in my estimation so misunderstood in the church these days. God, I pray that you would retune our hearts. God, I pray that we would see your love in the pages of Scripture, that revelation, not feelings, but revelation would guide our discovery, perhaps our rediscovery of your love and i pray that as we learn about your love that you would breathe encouragement into our souls that you would grant us strength that you would rejuvenate us with uh, this rediscovery of your amazing love god i ask that you would be there for those who are especially hurting this morning that you would minister to them by the power of your spirit that we would see this reality shine forth in a a beautiful and a miraculous way. We entrust uh, this time to you and ask that you do a good work in the hearts of your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we explore and as I prayed, as we rediscover the love of God this morning, let us first depict the condition of the creature. And remember that as we rediscover the love of God, that the, the condition of the creature will be really the, the black velvet that will help us to see and glory in the love of God. So I want to begin by depicting the, the condition of the creature. And as we look at the condition of the creature, I want you to imagine that this is the first time that you have heard these, these truths. I want you to imagine with me that you are a, a new believer today. And if you're not a Christian, this will indeed be the first time in all likelihood that you have seen these realities. We begin here by saying that every person is born into this world a spiritual slave. Every person who is born into this world is born an enemy of God. That may be a hard pill for you to swallow today because this is not something that we're hearing about much anymore in the church that every person apart from grace is an enemy of Almighty God. Romans chapter 5, verse 10 says that if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. Paul said to the church in Ephesus, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That is the the accurate portrait of a sinner who has not yet received grace. I want to turn your attention this morning as we gaze at the black velvet to some insight that I have received over the years from the pen of Jonathan Edwards. Let me remind you that Jonathan Edwards was a, uh, a pastor. He was a man who was born in 1703. He died in 1758. God uh, uh, gave him grace as in, his, in his latter teenage years. He was raised in a very godly home, but that godly home did not mean that he was a believer. He needed to trust Christ and, and believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ in order for him to be saved. He was a man who in his teenage years wrestled with the sovereignty of God. Some of you can, can relate to Edwards' experience. I can certainly relate to Edwards' experience. In my early 20s, I, I wrestled and battled with the sovereignty of God, much like Edwards did. In my estimation, no one has more vividly described the sinful reality of the creature who has yet to receive grace outside of Jonathan Edwards. I want to tackle it this way and ask this question, in what respect are natural men the enemies of God? You see, that's what Romans chapter 5 very clearly teaches. That if you have not yet received the grace of God, you are an enemy of God. And Edwards addresses this in the 18th century. In what respect is a natural person an enemy of God? And there are four key insights he provides. First, he says this. He says that sinners who have yet to receive grace are enemies in the natural relish of their souls. They are enemies in the natural relish of their souls. You say, what does it mean? Edwards explains. He says, the natural tendency of the heart of man, that is men and women, is to fly from God and to keep at a distance from him as far off as possible. This is a very interesting point for me. Because... Probably 20 to 25 years ago, there were a series of pastors who began a new movement that we now know as the seeker-sensitive movement. And what the seeker-sensitive movement did was they had a passion, and this is in their defense, they had a passion to reach lost people. That was a good motivation. But in their zeal, in their passion to reach lost people in this this developing of the seeker-sensitive service, which includes things like the seeker-sensitive sermon, the uh, seeker-sensitive sanctuary, which in some cases would eliminate the cross of Christ, which would eliminate any language about the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, about the sacrificial system in the Old Testament, because these are all things that are counterintuitive to a so-called seeker but what we need to understand with Edwards and with the testimony of Jesus and the apostles is that seekers simply don't exist. Is every person who is yet to receive grace is an enemy of God. That they are in their natural condition. They are an enemy of God as Edwards puts it. They are enemies in the natural relish of their souls. There's a second thing Edwards said. He says that they are enemies in this sense, that their wills are contrary to his will. In very simple language, the unconverted person will not do what God wants that person to do. Romans chapter 8, 7 and 8 says that very clearly, that they are uninterested in the things of God. They are simply unwilling to submit to God. In fact, the Bible says in Romans 8, they cannot submit to God. Thirdly, Edwards says that they are enemies to God in their affections. They are not only enemies to God in their wills, they are enemies to God in their hearts. At the deep root level in their hearts, they do not love God. They do not love the Word of God. They do not love God. The Lord Jesus Christ. And it's that way by nature. Edward says it like this. That the heart. And that is the heart. Who is yet to receive grace. Is like a viper. Hissing and spitting poison. At God. He says when wicked men come to be cast into hell. That their malice against God. Will appear. Then their heart will appear as full of malice. As hell is full of fire. You say pastor you don't understand. I have a friend, I have a relative, I have an aunt, I have an uncle, I have a mom, I have a dad who is not a Christian, but they love God. They serve God. Their motivation is good, and Edwards would respond with a thousand times no. This person who has yet to receive grace does not pursue God. This person does not love God. They are enemies to God in their affections. And in the final analysis, if you can't see it now, when that person is sent to hell, that's when the malice will appear in sharp relief. Finally, Edwards says that the unconverted person is an enemy of God in their practice. It's not only... That they have a natural relish of evil in their souls. It's not only that they have a will that's contrary to the will of God. That their heart is contrary to the heart of God. But the things they do in their lives do not match the revelation. The revealed will of God in his holy word. I want to ask a second question. I want to, I want to begin to, to unfold what the enmity looks like. Enmity, the dictionary defines as a state of sealing or being actively opposed or hostile to something. At a very basic level, at a minimal level, when the Washingtons—I'm sorry, Nate—when the Washington Cougars came to Seattle just yesterday, the Huskies had enmity toward the Cougars. And what do you think the Cougars felt about the Huskies? And you're, you're pretty sharp. Enmity. And so the cougs have enmity toward the huskies, and the dogs have enmity toward the cougars. Now, in a very real sense, and in a sense that is much more meaningful, a sinner, a person who has yet to receive grace, has enmity to God. Edwards describes it with four descriptions. He says, first, they have no love of God. We've already learned about that. If you have yet to trust Jesus for salvation, the Bible says you simply don't love God. Secondly, he says every fiber of their being opposes God. That is really the essence here of enmity. Additionally, he says they are mortal enemies of the living God. He says natural enemies or natural men rather are enemies to the dominion of God. That is the kingdom of God. And their nature shows their goodwill to dethrone him if they could. You say, what did I just hear? The Bible says this. The Bible implies that every sinner who is yet to receive grace is if they could be God, they would become God. And you say, how in the how on earth could you ever say that? Because Adam and Eve proved it to us. Cain proved it to us. Nebuchadnezzar proved it to us. Judas proved it to us. And each of us before we receive grace would freely admit that if we could dethrone God, we would. Edwards concludes by saying that they are greater enemies to God than they are to any other being. Think of, the, think of a someone or something that you may have enmity against, something that you bitterly oppose. Edwards says that's nothing compared to the enmity that you have toward God. He says it like this. But natural men, that is the unconverted person, without a mighty work of God to change their hearts, will never get over their enmity against God. They are greater enemies to God than they are to the devil. Let me sum these things up. Every person who has yet to receive grace is helpless, hopeless, and under the wrath of Almighty God. Every person, apart from grace, resists God, rebels against the authority of God, and recoils at the very presence of God. This morning, I want you to see the weightiness of sin. I want you to see the gravity of sin and recognize that the penalty for sin is death. The penalty for sin is death. This, you see, is the black velvet that every human being must take into account. This black velvet of sin is really at the, the very core of our hearts. It's, it's at the core of our, our minds and our wills and our emotions and our, our conscience. The black velvet of sin fuels our thoughts. It fuels our intentions and our goals and our daily activities. The black velvet of sin represents the sinfulness of sin that separates mankind From a holy God. But. But. Do you know how important that word is? We heard it from Chris this morning. We heard it from Jason this morning. And now we will meditate for a moment. With the black velvet of sin before you. The black velvet that if I were to. To just guess, some of you here are extremely uncomfortable with. The black velvet of sin is offensive to the carnal mind. But the word of God makes it very clear where we stand before God apart from grace. And that is why this word but is so very important. Would you turn with me to Romans chapter 5? Lord willing, in the days ahead, long ways down the road, we will turn our attention to an expository study of the book of Romans. And I must tell you, I can't wait. But we need to finish John first after this study. Romans chapter 5, verse 8. Remember the context here. That Paul the Apostle, beginning in Romans chapter 1, is beginning to unfold the sinfulness of sin. Really, what Paul does in Romans 1 through 4 is he unveils the the black velvet of sin. And he contrasts the sinfulness of the creature with the holiness of Almighty God. And with the black velvet of sin fresh in our mind... Look at Romans 5 verse 8, but, but God shows his what? His love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so with that framework, with that foundation before us, I want to move from the the depiction of the creature to a brief definition of the love of God. I want to provide you with a few definitions and then we'll move on to some more detailed descriptions. The first definition I want to give you and put on the screen for you from Wayne Grudem says that God's love means that God eternally gives himself to others. I want you to to zero in on that word others. That God's love means that he eternally gives himself to others. Which others? The others who, apart from grace, are characterized by the black velvet of sin. He also gives his love to those of us who have trusted Christ. God gives of himself. Millard Erickson says it this way. God's love may be thought of as his eternal giving or sharing of himself. J.I. Packer says it like this. God's love is an exercise of His goodness. That's what we learned about last week. It's an exercise of His goodness toward individual sinners whereby having identified Himself with their welfare. Stop there. What is their welfare? The black velvet of sin. He has identified Himself with their welfare. He has given His Son... To be their Savior, and now brings them to know and enjoy Him in covenant relation. I want to move from the definition of love to really the very core of the message this morning by providing you with some descriptions of love. And I want to give you four very basic descriptions of love that. I want to encourage you to anchor into the very fiber of your being. The first is this. If we are to describe love, that is the love of God, we must return to a balanced and a biblical view of the love of God. You say, return to a balanced and a biblical view. What did we lose? Well, let me explain it like this. Somewhere along the way in the 18th century, some pastors and theologians got fixated on the wrath of God. And it was good and right and proper for them to emphasize the wrath of God. But if the love of God was eclipsed by the wrath of God, it was no longer good and right and proper. And so as a counterbalance in the 19th century, some pastors and theologians came along and said, whoa, whoa, it's all wrong. We need to emphasize the love of God, you see. And it is good and right to emphasize the love of God. But when the love of God eclipses the wrath of God, Or even extinguishes the wrath of God altogether, which is what many of those theologians did. And some of them were German. Those German pastors and theologians so emphasized the love of God that the wrath of God was utterly extinguished. What do we need to do? We need to return to a balanced and a biblical view of the love of God. Let me provide this information this way. The scriptures say over and over and over again that God is love. God is a God of love. Would you turn with me into your to your Bibles to the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 34. Lord willing, we will be back in Exodus 34 next week and really pick up where we left off. But for our purposes this morning, look with me at Exodus chapter 34, beginning in verse 6. And here is this very well-known exchange between Moses and the living God, where in verse 6, Yahweh, or the Lord, passed before him. That is, passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, that is Yahweh, Yahweh. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. I want you to mark those words, steadfast love. That is where we will zero in this morning. The word steadfast love, the English word steadfast love, are translated from the Hebrew It's the Hebrew word that is very well known. It's the Hebrew word, pardon me, chesed. It's hard to say, but I want to say it correctly. It's the Hebrew word chesed. And here's what it means. It means loyal love. Loyal love. And is that not what every person is in need of? Loyal love. We see that phrase, steadfast love, emerging throughout the Old Testament. In Genesis 39, 21, and let me encourage you to stay in Exodus 34 and perhaps jot these verses down and you can go back and look at them later. But let these scriptures wash over your minds. Let them wash over your your hearts and your conscience and be blown away with the loyal love of God. Genesis 39:21 But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. Exodus 15:13 You have led in your steadfast love same Hebrew word you have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed you have guided them by your strength to your holy abode Numbers fourteen eighteen. The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression. He will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. First Chronicle sixteen thirty four. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is. Remember last week? Good. He is good for his steadfast love endures forever second chronicle 6 6 14 lord god of israel there is no god like you in heaven or on earth keeping covenant and showing loyal love that is steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart Psalm 3210, many many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts the Lord. Are you getting an idea of the the dominant theme of the steadfast love of the Lord in Scripture? Psalm 3318, behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love. Psalm thirty six five, your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Psalm six five, for you, O Lord, are good and forgiving and abounding in steadfast love. And so the verses go on and on and on. Are you not encouraged this morning to know that your God is a God? Of steadfast love. That your God is a God of loyal love. I want to take a moment and have you pause and ask a question. A question that each one of us needs to consider. And that is, have you called upon? Have you turned to the God of steadfast love? You see, the the Puritans used to make an assumption when they stepped into the pulpit. They would assume that no matter how big the congregation, whether it was 50 or 150, whether it was 750 or 2,500, that there were always unconverted people in the room. I make the same assumption. I make the assumption that there is someone today. There may be more than one. There may be a handful of people. There may be a whole gob of people who have yet to turn to The God of steadfast love. I was sharing with a few of the men this morning while we prayed, before we prayed, rather, that several years ago, my brother in law came to visit in Le Grand. And he was interested in checking out a lake that we had done some fishing at the prior summer. And the reason he wanted to check it out was to really just see what was going on up there during the winter months. And even though it was wintertime, there was no ice, there was no snow on the road at at our house, which sat at 2,700 feet. You get the gist? He wanted to go up to Morgan Lake, where it was roughly 4,100 feet. And so we both threw on a couple of windbreakers and just weren't really ready for much of anything, and got in his truck, four-wheel drive, and we make our way to the top of the hill. No snow, no snow, no snow. We get to about 3,500 feet and the snow begins to form on the road. We get to the very top and see the lake and we're going to go all the way to the lake. And we were so excited and there came a point where uh, we stopped. And he says, well, we got to get out and we need to, we need to push out. And we got out and uh, Chris helped me baptize my brother-in-law Lee. I know Lee is a, a big boy. He is 10 times stronger than me. And we get out and we start to push and we start to shove. And it, it, it's a little bit like today. This is Le Grand weather today. Very cold, very brisk, sun shining. And we're, we're getting cold. And I'm starting to get a little bit worried. We have no food, no self-service. We're at 4,100 feet and we're stuck in the mud, if you will. That is to say the snow. And uh, I just thought for sure that Lee would figure it out. He's he's the tough one. He's the strong one. I'm the weakling. I'm just the preacher, right? (laughs) I'd be happy to pray. I can't push us out. I'm just a weak guy. And he says, you know what we're going to have to do? We're going to have to hike down the hill and get some help. Who's going to be around in this weather? You know? And so we start to make the long trek down the hill. And thankfully, we see a little house with uh, the chimney, and smoke's coming out of the chimney, and there's a a nice big truck outside. So I'm not the sharpest tool in the shed, but I'm putting this together, right? So we knock on the door, and uh, a very nice gentleman opened the door. He did not invite us in, but he said, "Uh, how can I help you guys? And we said, well, we made our way to the top of the hill. We wanted to see Morgan Lake, blah, 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 and we're stuck. Is there any way you could help us? He said, I'd be happy to help you guys, but you need to know something here. He said, uh, I'm retired, and uh, during the course of my professional career, I was a psychiatrist. And he says, uh, we have a name for people like you who drive 4,100 feet (laughs) when there's snow on the road. (laughs) This is such a sharp crowd. You already know what he's going to call us. He said, we call people like you crazy. (sighs) I was so embarrassed. I was so embarrassed. My friends, we have learned this morning about the condition of the creature. We have learned that apart from God's sovereign grace, that we are enemies of his, that we are separated from a holy God due our sin, that we are under the wrath of almighty God for our sin of unbelief. And there is a word for anyone who refuses to call upon this God of steadfast love. There is a word That describes the person who refuses to turn to this God to repent from his or her sin. Anyone who refuses the love of a God who demonstrates steadfast love is crazy. It's absolute lunacy to turn from this God. And so this morning, I I plead with you to Turn to this God of steadfast love, turn from your sin, trust in him. The scriptures say this, believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. My atheist friend said to me one day, save from what? Save from God, save from the wrath of almighty God. And so our task this morning is to return to a balanced and a biblical view. And so we've seen that God is love. But the scriptures also proclaim this. The scriptures also proclaim that God is a God of wrath. And several weeks from now, after the first of the year, we will take one Sunday morning to unpack what it means for God to be a God of wrath. Notice in Exodus 34. In Exodus 34, verse 7. Yet, yet, he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. John 3.36 says it like this, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. If you're here this morning and you, you're, you're trusting in Jesus, and it's not mere mental assent, but it's, I, I, I trust Him in my mind, I cherish Him in my heart, and I entrust myself to Him as a person. The Word of God says that if you have done that, you will receive eternal life. But whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God Remains on him. John MacArthur says it like this. Both God's wrath and his love work to the same end. Namely, his glory. God is glorified in the condemnation of the wicked and he is glorified in the salvation of his people. The expression of his wrath and the expression of his love are both necessary to display his full glory and so what does the person do who minimizes the wrath of God the person who minimizes the wrath of God marginalizes the love of God and the glory of God I want to move to the second point. We not only must return to a balanced and a biblical view of the love of God, we must renew our understanding of God's love. You see, we should stand in awe today because God loves us. One of the things I've become recently concerned about is that that many of us, including myself at times, is we simply are not blown away By the love of God. 1 John 3.1 says it like this. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. That we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Think of it. Remember the black velvet. Remember where we stand apart from grace. And then think of this. But God loved me. The NIV says it like this in 1 John 3, 1, that God lavished us with his love. I like that word a great deal. Can you imagine that? The God of the universe lavished you with his love. And the greatest evidence of that love is seen in the gift of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We should not only stand in awe of God's love, we should stand in awe that God would choose a sinner like me. That He would choose a, a sinner like you, he did not have to love the unlovable, but he chooses to. He loved the one who despised him. He loved the one who refused to trust him. He loved the one who chose to run in the opposite direction from him. He loved the ones who crucified him. God has called everyone who believes in him, 1 John 3, children of God. That phrase called in 1 John 3 means to call aloud by name. When God chose you, he said, Gary Smith, I choose you. Spence, I choose you. Norm and Katie, I choose you. He called your name aloud. Dale, glorious, praise the Lord. God adopts us and welcomes us into his family. And so we should stand in awe because God sent Jesus to die in my place. He sent Jesus to die in your place, to bear the weight of sand for everyone who would ever believe. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him, 1 John 4, 9. Third, I want you to see our desperate need to rekindle God's universal offer of love. We need to rekindle God's universal offer of love. Why? For God so loved the world... That he gave his one and only begotten son. That whosoever should believe in him would have eternal life. Would you hold your finger in Exodus 34 and look with me at Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22. Something interesting happens here in the parable of the wedding feast. And I want to read this in full to give you the full flavor here. In Matthew 22, starting in verse 1, Jesus spoke to them. In parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. You see the, the invitation to come. Verse 5 but they paid no attention they paid no attention it's kind of like this when when you hear the proclamation of the gospel on a consistent basis that is an invitation to come and one of the one of the most discouraging things for pastors and those pastors must remember that they stand under the sovereignty of God but one of the most discouraging things is to offer the love of God and received this, but they paid no attention. Back to the parable. They paid no attention. They went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry and he sent his troops and he destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you can find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot, cast him to outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. When I suggest that we need to rekindle God's universal offer of love. I simply mean this. That God's love is not offered to some. God's love is offered to all. There are no exceptions. There are no exclusions. There are no provisions. God's love is offered to all. And some of you may be thinking something like this. Pastor. Step it up a notch. Get get a little bit more complicated. Of course it's offered to all. But do you know, there are some who would say this. The love of God is only offered to the elect. There is a brand of theology that says that the love of God is only for the elect. And that is not taught in scripture. The love of God is is extended to all. It's a universal offer of love. The gospel invitation is extended to all peoples, to every ethne, that is, every tongue and tribe and nation. Because did you know that at the end of the day, at the end of the story, at the end of redemptive history, there will be representatives from every tribe and nation, every ethne, every tribe and nation in Indonesia, Every ethne, every tribe and nation in China, every ethne in all around the globe, there will be representatives in God's kingdom. Why? Because God's universal love is for all nations, it's for all peoples. Therefore, our passion should be this to proclaim the love of God to the nations. I'm so excited for. The work that uh, Rich and Angela and their team is is doing and will continue to do on the missions, Matt, is we as a church family have a desire to share the gospel message, not just to people in Whatcom County, but to the nations. The gospel must go to the nations. One writer puts it like this. So the preacher has not done his work when he has spoken of Christ and proclaimed the historic facts of salvation. From there, he must go on to urge the reception of Christ upon all men. Why? Because the universal offer of God's love stands. Finally, would you turn also with me just one page over to Matthew chapter 22, verse 37. And you say, I know that section of scripture very well. In Matthew chapter 22 let's start in verse 34 the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees and they gathered together one of them a lawyer asked him a question to test him teacher what is the greatest commandment in the law Jesus said to him you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind this is the great and first commandment and the second is like it you shall love your neighbor as yourself. As we conclude this morning. Let me encourage you with this final point, namely to rejuvenate, to rejuvenate the love or the command rather to love God and love people. What is the most important aspect here? The teacher asks or the lawyer asks Jesus to love the Lord, your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength and to love your neighbor as As yourself. Let me challenge you with this. Is your great passion in life. To love the living God. And when you love God. By definition. When you love God. You will do good deeds for other people. And when you do good deeds for other people. You make God look great. You make God look glorious. As of course he is. I want to ask. What would it look like. In your life this week to embrace this commitment to loving other people with the love of Jesus. See, we should love one another because the Bible says in 1 John that we are born of God. And so I would challenge you with with a template that emerges in 1 Peter at chapter 1. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22, we have what you might call a template or a benchmark that says this. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere and brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. The pastor from Northampton, Massachusetts. Jonathan Edwards made an observation that I want to set on the table for you this morning to challenge your thinking and to encourage you. He said this, love, love is the sum of Christianity. Love is the sum of Christianity. If, if you have not yet trusted Jesus for salvation, I urge you to turn from your sin, to trust the lord jesus christ knowing that god sent jesus to bear the weight of your sin he lived a life that none of us could ever live he died a death that i deserve to die and you deserve to die now he calls upon you to to cash in on his redemptive work to believe in what he accomplished for your sin Have you done that this morning? And it is only when you trust Jesus that you will understand that you begin to understand his magnanimous, everlasting, sovereign love. Wouldn't it be an amazing thing if today someone said, Pastor, I've gone to church for years and I have never said, Jesus, I believe not just in my head, not just in my heart. But now I entrust myself to him. I am his disciple. I am his slave. He is my master. I receive eternal life that Isaiah 55 says is absolutely free. For many of you who are following Christ this morning and have for some time now, some of you, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, I leave you. With Edward's sentence, love is the sum of Christianity. Are you loving well? Are you loving well? Are your priorities in alignment with the word of God? Here we stand together as a church family where we have explored the, the wonders of God. Where we have explored his attributes and learned about the Lord Jesus Christ who who expressed the love of God on the cross when he died for you? Have you trusted him? Have you turned to him? And are you showing tangible expression of the love that God has given you by doing good things, by doing great things for people around you? I'm going to close. I'll share from my heart here for a minute. I, I read a book on personal productivity. Over the weekend, you might think, what's personal productivity have to do with this subject? It has this to do with it. Is the author, who is a Christian man, encourages his readers to not only do good things for people to the glory of God, to make God look great, make God look glorious. He says, do this. And I challenge husbands, especially with this, to surprise people. Surprise your wife. Surprise your children. Not only doing good things that you do as a, a matter of habit. You, you provide for the needs of your family. You, you you purchase good food for them to enjoy. But the author said something, and it just struck a chord in me. From time to time, men, surprise your wife. And that doesn't mean go out and buy her a new car, although that would be really cool. But that means just just surprise her with something she wasn't expecting. Maybe it's just an night alone where you get a babysitter and you, you spend time with your wife and say, Honey, I, I love you so much. I just want you to know how much I, I love and appreciate you. You are my bride. Let me encourage you to not only do good to the glory of God, but from time to time surprise people with a random act of kindness that makes the living God look glorious as he is. Are you thankful this morning for the love of God? Amen. Wow. Wow. Let us stand in awe of his love. Father, thank you for your love. The many ways that you express it to us. Thank you for the ultimate act of love that was seen when you sent your only son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to live the life that we can never live and die the death that each of us deserve to die. Lord Jesus, thank you for obeying the father. Thank you for your commitment to the glory of God. Thank you for dying on the cross and we're so grateful that you were raised from the dead on the third day so that now we can have new life now that we can have our sins forgiven. Now we can live for all eternity with the God of steadfast love. Will you remind us of these great gospel realities today? God, I pray that this week that we would be in awe of these realities that would extend for the rest of our lives as we are blown away. By the steadfast love of God. Church in your son's worthy name we pray. Amen.